trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you are tired of putting up with the lies that the lying liars are constantly telling you, I think you're going to find something here that's refreshing. It's the ability to make up your own mind, to think more clearly and independently, because there is absolutely no insistence on my part that you have to believe everything you hear on this program. Now, I do uh, carefully pick uh, sources that are based in uh, principle more so than party, that uh, are credible, that are timely, and hopefully will leave you more certain of who you are and what you stand for than simply what you're angry about or alarmed about or what you hate. So with those ground rules in mind, let's uh, let's get things started. Got some great sponsors who make this show possible on a daily basis. They include Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and GovernYourCrypto.com. Well, I'm going to start out a little bit sentimental today, and I hope you'll bear with me, but I I have to give tribute uh, to my aunt who passed away over the weekend. It was a beautiful Easter weekend, and, uh, you know, I want to share an experience with you just simply because... I'm still blown away at how gracefully my Aunt Janet exited this life. Now, to, to set the stage, though, uh, of all the aunts and uncles that I've had, and I've, I've had a number of aunts and uncles throughout my life, I don't think I've been as close to any of them as, as I have with Janet and her husband, Doug. They are just wonderful people. I remember before they were even married, I was a tiny little kid, two years old, but I remember <clears throat> Janet briefly coming and living with my family and me. I remember visiting them as a child, them taking me through downtown Salt Lake. She and her husband both worked for, I believe, Deseret News. And uh, I, I remember them taking me to, you know, to kind of tour downtown Salt Lake to see the cool places. I mean, I was just a little kid. But Janet was there at every pivotal moment of my life. They, She and her husband, Doug, were just, they were there for, for every important thing that ever happened including my marriage, including uh, my kids' marriages, uh, those that are married. And, uh, and in the last few years, as, as she and my mom have, have grown older and as their siblings and family have, have passed away one by one, um, Janet and my mom, she's my mom's younger sister, found themselves in this, this weird kind of race. I don't know if you have this in your family, but if you have, uh, if you have loved ones who are approaching end of life, I don't know if this is common among siblings, but there's kind of this informal competition. Who's going to graduate first, right? <laughs> you know, who's going to be the first to go home? And uh, we, we've teased my mom. We've teased Janet about this. And what's, what's interesting is as, as they have grown older and, and had a little tougher time, you know, driving and things like that, it was my privilege over the last few years to, to be the chauffeur. Janet and her husband would ask me to to drive them up to Idaho so that uh, my mom could have uh, Christmas in October with her siblings. And I know this sounds that sounds like great fun, Brian. Wow, I'd you know I'd give up the Super Bowl for that. But let me explain. The older I get, the more I realize family really is where our focus needs to be. 
This is where the lasting happiness is going to be. This is where the satisfaction of a life well lived is going to be found. Not that you can't have fun along the way. The Super Bowl would be fun, but it was so great to get to spend that time with them and to to chauffeur them to, you know, the Christmas in October, to various funerals, since it seems like that's kind of where our family reunions take place these days. Some loved one passes away, and that's where we all finally get together. And it was my privilege to get to spend that time, you know, in the car with them, visiting, getting to know them at a deeper level. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always appreciated Janet's sense of humor. She was very artistic. She's very, just had a really quick sense of humor, uh, almost an OCD sense of organization. I think she probably had her funeral planned, you know, from the time she was 35 years old. She has just, uh, she has just been a real can-do kind of person. And she's spent the better part of the last two years compiling a really comprehensive family history for for members of her family. I I know there was more that she was hoping to get done, but uh, her eyesight was failing her. She was dealing with a lot of different health problems. And I'm sharing this with you because I just want to point out, <clears throat> we knew that she had, had suffered some pretty serious health issues. In fact, on, on April Fool's Day, she was in the hospital and there was there was about a 99% certainty that she was not going to make it through that day. And she went through emergency surgery. She woke up from the surgery. First thing she said to her doctor was, April Fool's, I didn't die. <laughs> I thought, okay, there's that sense of humor. Well, um, there were complications, things that arose after the surgery. And so um, I got a call from her last Friday morning. And I don't know if you've ever had a call like this. But uh, she called me, and I was surprised to see it was her on the phone because I knew she was back in the hospital. I knew she had had some some problems, but she just very matter of factly said, "Brian, I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm calling to say goodbye. I'm ready to go home." And I had the most tender and meaningful conversation that I can recall with her. As uh, I mean, it was just. I don't know how often life gives you the opportunity to truly have closure with a loved one who is dying, but that was that was one for me. And the the beautiful thing about it is what needed to be said was said. There was no fear, there was no regret. Um there was there's some sadness on my part, but um, you know, here, here, this this wonderful aunt of mine is uh, figuratively wiping away my tears. You know, she's comforting me. When she's the one who's dying. Very, very powerful stuff. And I'm, I'm sharing this with you simply because I'm still trying to come to terms with what I think may be the, the most graceful exit that I have ever seen anyone make from this world. I aspire to leave with that kind of grace. And I wasn't the only one she called. She called. She must have worked through most of the people on her contact list because I know there were a lot of people who received calls from her. And it was just a brief call. But it was it was the purpose behind that call that just, I, I, again, still, I, I'm, I'm trying to come to terms with it. Um, I want to be sad. But at the same time, I just can't help but feel a sense of, um, you know, it was time. And I'm so grateful that she took the time to to say that. So I don't know. I'm sharing this with you probably more to get it off my chest and just this is this is how I, I you know, put stuff into perspective. 
but maybe it'll it'll uh, be a little you know spark for someone who needs to hear say the things that you need to say to your loved ones and don't be afraid you know to 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 make whatever <clears throat> you know amends need to be made life is short and uh, and it's 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 full of challenges but I guess one of the things I've always admired about Janet was no matter how bad her challenges were, and she had many, she had some really serious health problems that were just, you know, very, very difficult. I don't know that she ever slept a complete night's sleep in the last couple of years because of chronic pain that she was dealing with. And yet every time I would try to reach out to her to cheer her up, you know, because I figured, well, you know, she probably, probably could use a little, you know, lift of her spirits. I was the one who ended up coming away feeling uplifted and feeling cheered what an incredible ability so thank you for letting me take a few moments to to recognize my aunt i'm i'm sad that she's gone but i can only imagine you know the kind of uh, welcome home party that was waiting for her on the other side i hope that her family will have you know comfort i'm, I'm sending my encouragement my love to them and I'm just so grateful that I had the chance to have that last conversation. It's a really rare thing. I guess that's one of the reasons I'm sitting here just kind of, hmm, wow. How do you describe something like that? The fact it happened over Easter weekend, I don't know, just to me kind of made it even even a little more uh, poignant from the standpoint of, you know, I, I try to, to spend a little bit of time on Easter weekend really reflecting. What does this represent? You know, of all the troubles in the world, what's the one thing that you can count on? Everything around us is changing. And I love somebody pointed out, well, the one thing I can count on is the fact that uh, that tomb is still empty. So I draw upon that again for strength. I hope that uh, I hope this hasn't, you know, uh, been too maudlin <laughs> to, to share this with you. But I feel like I was just presented with a really important life lesson, which I'm still trying to make sense of. And for what it's worth, I'm sharing it with you on the off chance that there's some way that it will benefit you as well. So when we come back, I've got some uh, got some pretty good stuff to share with you today. It's been a productive weekend. I have found a lot of great material to share. We're going to talk about misinformation on the other side of the break. We hear it all the time. What does it really mean? Stick around and find out. We'll be back after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. A quick thank you to lifesavingfood.com. Yes, this is a food storage and emergency preparedness website. It's run by my friend Kendall Whiting. I know you could find something there that would uh, give you peace of mind as well as a sense of security in a very insecure time. So whether your budget is large or small, whether you are, you know, operating from, oh, no, no, we've been preparing for years, or maybe you're just thinking, wow, I really should probably start getting something together. Click on the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, lifesavingfood.com. I'm sure you can find something that will better your position no matter how well established you are at this moment. And I encourage you to please do business with lifesavingfood.com. 
Well, let's talk about uh, what we learned this last weekend. So uh, Elon Musk made a play for Twitter. He made an offer to them. I think it was uh, $54.2 billion or something. I can't remember. It was it was a chunk of change. And interestingly enough, the Twitter uh, board closed ranks. Oh, we can't do this. We, uh, they, they, they poison-pilled the offer to make sure, well, we, we can't have this. Then I heard the SEC was going to start an investigation into Elon Musk. Wow, what a, what a reaction. And I liked uh, Glenn Greenwald's take on this. He says, you know, yesterday, he's speaking of like last Friday, was, or maybe it was last uh, Thursday, was a flagship day in corporate media. He says it was the day they were forced to explicitly state what's long been clear. They not only favor censorship, but they desperately crave and depend on it. His point being, even if Elon Musk doesn't buy Twitter, never forget what yesterday revealed. He says everyone knows they're lying. Nobody cares about Twitter censoring bots or spam. That's not what this is about. The point is social media censorship people... What what they care about is 100% ideological, whether it's banning dissent on COVID, whether it's banning dissent on the Biden emails, culture war debates, etc. That's what's at stake. Pretty crazy stuff. And he says, liberals don't believe they're authoritarians and in favor of censorship. Nobody really wants to believe that about themselves. He says, all authoritarians tell themselves what we're fighting is so dangerous that all tactics are inherently just. That's what they believe about themselves. And when you have organizations like Vanguard and BlackRock swooping in, trying to buy a larger share of Twitter than Elon Musk, that should tell us that the threat to the regime is real. This may be the first time a lot of people encounter Vanguard and BlackRock. So hopefully it doesn't sound too obsessive here you know, to, to report on this, but can you see the veil is off? And the the power centers, the ones who want to control the narrative and and make sure that you don't have other options to consider, they are getting desperate and will likely get violent to maintain that sense of control. Again, Glenn Greenwald points out, throughout the COVID pandemic, you weren't allowed to question the efficacy of cloth masks. You weren't allowed to to interrogate the origins of the virus. You weren't allowed to debate vaccines or lockdowns. No dissent from Fauci or the World Health Organization was allowed. The censorship was 100% political. So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about misinformation. Got a great article here from James Howard Kunstler. You've been misinformed. He says, half the nation doesn't believe anything it's told by those in authority, and the other half revels in its reckless abuse of authority. He asks, isn't it obvious by now that pervasive dishonesty is the foremost crisis of many crises in the West, in Western civilization generally and American life in particular? All of our authorities have made themselves false, lying their way into the broad collapse of confidence that drives the nation towards some culminating horror show of strife and loss. Now, the go-to lever of concerted mind effery has been the term of art misinformation, applied especially to things and propositions that are truthful, thereby confounding the public's ability to discern truth in anything or to discover how they're being misled in matters of life and death. We've allowed the worst in human nature to disgrace ourselves 
And he says, Satan, father of lies, is Western Civ's paragon of disgrace. And so American life appears more and more satanic and disgraceful. All of this was epitomized in the operation of Twitter, the cheerful little bluebird of social messaging, which evolved in a very few years into an instrument of coercion, punishment, deception, and lying, until it became clear that Twitter's misinformation was misinformation itself. And so he says it's refreshing to see one Elon Musk act to seize control of this satanic vector of disgrace. He says Mr. Musk appears motivated to defeat the culture of lying by restoring open debate in the ubiquitous online public arena. arena rather. And he says it's a heroic deed. But you see, it's not merely Twitter's management or its biggest shareholders that Musk is messing with, but malign forces in the U.S. government which have surreptitiously taken control of Twitter and other social media to work its will on events. If you don't know that Twitter, Facebook, and Google are proxies serving the U.S. intel community, well, then you've not been paying attention. Using Twitter to impose that culture of pervasive dishonesty in public chatter is what gave permission for all others to follow the script. Medicine has succeeded completely in disgracing and destroying itself by lying about everything connected to COVID-19. From its origins to the insanely outlawed treatments for it, to the harmful actions of vaccines, to the hidden data that might tell us the results of all that lying. Twitter set the tone for that with its censorship policies. Anyone who suggested that lockdowns, masking, remdesivir protocols, and vaccine mandates violated common decency was tossed out of the arena, often with added punishment of losing a career, a professional license, a livelihood, and, of course, having to endure the betrayal of colleagues cowed into silence. Twitter also enabled the suicide of higher education, which has succumbed to a plague of Jacobin craziness that would embarrass the inmates of an old-time locked ward. The failure of authority on campus is cosmic. Can you name a single college president who's raised a voice against such manifest idiocy as men competing in women's sports, the invention of ersatz fields of study, the resegregation of dormitories and graduation ceremonies, the shouting down of invited lecturers, the persecution of free-thinking faculty, the kangaroo courts for sex disputes, and a hundred other violations of intellect and decency? All of this coerced insanity has been nurtured by social media's sly mechanisms for bending narrative into propaganda. Their beloved algorithms all fine-tuned to destroy anything that touches on truth. And the result is a country so marinated in falsehood that it can't construct a coherent consensus of reality and can't take coherent actions to avert its own collapse. James Howard Kunstler says mighty forces, forces are marshalling to prevent Elon Musk from buying up Twitter stock and taking the company private. BlackRock, Vanguard, the Prince Regent of Saudi Arabia are all principal stockholders in Twitter with gazillions in capital to, capital to theoretically match and overcome Mr. Musk's moves. Meanwhile, the Tesla boss maintains a prankish self-confidence in this exploit offering cryptically comic jibes to a news media that's openly vested in opposing him. You have to suppose that he's gamed out the gamble. He's looking like someone who has dealt, a hand, dealt out a hand of cards aiming to shoot the moon. James Howard Kunstler says the prospect of an open arena for ideas is exhilarating all of a sudden, considering how the information stream got hijacked in service to the wicked. It's fun to see their tortured... Cousistry, as they plead for content moderation, that's the phrase du jour for censorship, as if it were a good thing, rather than the opposite of anything good.
He says, this feels like the beginning of something positive after a long siege of political degeneracy. Let the sunshine in to disinfect the arena. Cast the demons back into darkness. You go, Elon. Yeah, he's feeling pretty optimistic. And I don't think I disagree. By the way, I just, I love, I love James Howard's counselor's ability to summarize what's going on. Because there's a lot of moving parts. And yeah, he may be a little hyperbolic at times, but I think factually, he's right on the money. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. And might I add, thank you for giving this show a chance. There are so many voices out there, and I know that uh, you know we're all competing for your time and for your attention. I thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to share some information with you. If you're serious in taking a deep dive down the rabbit hole and following that information as, as far as you can, I would recommend subscribe to my show notes. I provide links to the various articles and commentators and guests that I have on the show, and you can, at your own leisure, do your own fact-checking. I mean, look, living in the age of misinformation like we do, this is, it's essential. And all I ask is that you share your email with me. The subscribe button is found at the bottom of my daily show notes. Just go to any day. That's where you'll find it. By the way, I want to thank the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage for being one of my sponsors as well. Heather has been instrumental in helping to get my voice out there. And I would ask you, if you or someone you know, is looking to secure a mortgage from a VA loan to a traditional loan to a reverse mortgage anywhere within the state of Utah or the state of Idaho, please reach out to Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. There is a an email link in my show notes that will connect you to Heather, or you can call her at 435-703-4522. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot home mortgage. So it's pretty tough to know exactly what's going on. And and particularly um, when it comes to the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I look, there was a time when I when I was uh, I was full on a warmonger. In other words, I looked at war like this incredible televised video game and whoever was getting blown up whether it was by you know helicopter gunship strikes or precision you know laser guided bombs or whatever I actually thought it was cool and I would sit there and you know high five my friends yeah did you see when they dropped it right down the the ventilation shaft of that bunker oh man that was amazing I don't know what exactly happened but somewhere along the way I grew up and while I'm not quite a full-blown pacifist, I definitely am not someone who looks at war as something that's cool. I think it's, uh, I think it's horrific. I think it's, uh, it's, it's the worst that humanity can inflict on one another. And it also robs us of our ability to think clearly and independently. You want to see evidence of this? Just go on anywhere on social media and look at the tribal mentalities you know, the celebration of, of outrageous, you know, just absolutely dehumanizing behavior 
but as long as it's being carried out against them, that's a good thing. It makes our lives better. And those those people, they're not even really people. They're just they're insects whose deaths make our lives better. You think I'm exaggerating, but that's the mentality that seems to take hold. And and it's crazy to see people who otherwise are good decent people in many aspects of their lives, but who fall into this uh, this primate mentality when conflict comes up. And I know they're like, well, Brian, we live in the real world, whereas you're in some la-la land of peace and happiness and everybody holding hands and singing kumbaya. No, I get it. Conflict is a big part of the human experience, and actually, you know, war has probably been more prevalent throughout human history than not. But I'm not about to pretend that this is the highest to which we can aspire, to have the mightiest weapons, to have, you know, the the greatest amount of blood on our hands. And it's okay if you disagree with me on this. In fact, you know, that's that's one of the things that I find most interesting is any dissent from from chanting in unison with the Warhawks is seen as, well, then by default, you are supporting the enemy. So... I'm sure there's not a few people who would, you know, regard uh, my my objection or my uh, decision to abstain from from chanting with them as some kind of evidence. Well, you must love Putin. You must be one of his paid stooges. But it brings us to a very interesting dilemma, and and I'm not talking, you know, I'm I'm not going to try and reason with people who have slipped through the event horizon of irrationality and are in full, you know, war mind mode. I just don't think it's possible to reach them. But I think there are people, and I hope that you're one of them, who are still trying to make sense of everything and yet realizing, wow, it is really hard to know what has been or what is going on, for instance, in the Ukraine and Russia conflict. How can you know? Because the propaganda is thick, and I mean from all sides. That's one of the other horrible things about war is just truth is, is, truth is considered the enemy. Because truth might reveal something to our enemies that could be useful against us. And and so every side abandons truth as quick as they can. They thrive on deception. And, ooh, isn't that masterful? That's what we celebrate. Well, I'm linking to an article in my show notes. And I think this is actually one of the most impartial articles that I have seen regarding what's going on and what has been going on in Ukraine. Now, this is from an individual by the name of, of Jacques Baud. He is a retired colonel in the Swiss Intelligence Service and was a very highly placed major participant in NATO training operations in Ukraine. Over the years, he's had a lot of extensive, de- extensive dealings with his Russian counterparts. And it's a very long essay, first published in France, or I'm sorry, in French, at the respected uh, Centre Francais de Recherche sur le Résiment. I don't, I'm butchering the name, but the translation appeared on April 1st of this year at the Postal. And so Boyd Cathy has gone back to the original French, edited the article down a little bit, and rendered it in what he hopes is a little more idiomatic English. But if you want to have a much more clear-eyed view of what has been going on, what led to the road to war in Ukraine, this is one of the best places to start. And and it, uh, it goes back to, um, you know, 2014. We don't hear a lot of uh, talk about this in the mainstream narrative. But there was a lot that happened in that year. And by the way, the U.S. government, sorry to, to report this, but 
had its hands right in the midst of all the upheaval and, and the conflict that started in Ukraine clear back then. Part two talks about the war itself, the outbreak of war. And then it goes into what is actually happening there and, and what, are, what are the goals. Now, here's the crazy thing. Some people will see this and say, well, if it's not, you know, categorically casting the Russians as these wild-eyed, rabid, <clears throat> you know, monsters out there just trying to destroy the world and the worst enemies of humankind, then somehow this must just be Russian propaganda. See, we've lost our ability to, to consider that uh, perhaps there's some nuance that's at work here. And all I'm, all I'm going to suggest is this. I, I don't want to make your mind up for you, but I'm going to suggest that anyone who has withheld judgment or who has taken a wait-and-see attitude, let's get as much information as we can before we jump on one bandwagon or another, has been very wise to do so. Because there is a lot of deception out there, and this, uh, this former Swiss intelligence officer, he puts a lot of the pieces together. And what, to me, makes it very credible is I have seen numerous other sources and resources that have commented on this conflict, and he seems to connect the dots very well for what they have pointed out. And, and these have been, you know, dissenting points of view, none of which are pro-Russian, but they're neither, they're neither pro-Russian nor pro-Ukrainian. But if you want to have a good understanding, I strongly recommend take a look at this and then make up your own mind. You may still come away with the idea, all right, this is all the Russians' fault, and, you know, um, I stand with Ukraine. And that's, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But I think this could fill in a few more pieces of the puzzle, and at the end of the day, my goal isn't so much to convince you this side is right and that side is wrong, so much as to convince you that whatever you're hearing about it, if it's coming through mass media sources, is probably pretty thoroughly worked over meaning it's, it's propaganda. And I share it with you not to, to, to prove how right and smart I am, but to caution you that uh, the deception is so universal these days, it takes supreme effort not to get caught up and swept along in this current of, do I dare use the word, disinformation. I just don't think it's ever been more important to be able to, to be connected to reality and to remain rooted in reality than right this minute. And if at any point in the last couple of years you found yourself questioning your own sanity, and by the way, my hand is in the air, I have, and I do question it on a daily basis, you'll understand. We have a lot stacked against us, and there, there's a lot of just hardcore disinformation blasted at us on a daily basis to keep us from being able to recognize the truth. But if you're one of those people, one of those rare individuals who's willing to pay the price and willing to step up and do your own hard, heavy lifting, you know, to understand what is real and what isn't, what is fact and what is fiction, it's well worth it. So, to that end, check out the article that I link in today's show notes. You'll find them at the thebrianheidshow.com. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about shades of gray in the Ukraine-Russian conflict. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Let me give a quick shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. That would be my friend Spencer Worthington, who is going to be a guest on this show. I'm hoping to... I'm hoping to get him on board sometime this week. We're going to talk not so much about ammo, but we will talk about uh, frugality and how it's it's kind of a dying art. But Spencer has walked the walk. He is a, he is a guy who has, I think, some tremendous suggestions on how to find happiness in frugality. And you know, I just I just put some gas in the car today and went, oh my gosh, you know. Even when I'm just topping it off, I'm I'm kind of uh, let's let's keep it above you know less than than a quarter tank having been run out of it. I I want to keep it you know definitely on the side of full every chance I get. And it used to be okay, so you put in ten bucks here, fifteen bucks there. No man, everything is thirty bucks, forty five bucks, fifty bucks. Whew. Stuff's getting expensive. Anyway, I link you to uh, hslammo.com in the show notes. Click on it. If you're in the mood, buy yourself some ammo. You won't be sad that you did. Let's talk for a moment about how war propaganda tries to frame things in black and white, almost comic book black and white. It's a, it's a morality tale, the good guys and the bad guys, but it's in, in a way that rarely reflects reality. Sheldon Richman makes the case that there are plenty of shades of gray in the Russia-Ukraine war. He says, if you're looking for morality tales, clashes between the clearly good and clearly bad, I suggest you look elsewhere than to, to the geopolitical theater. There we find only conflicts between shades of darker gray. And his point is, there's, this seems to have been the case throughout history. Empires and would-be empires vied with rival empires and would-be empires for territory, resources, taxpayers, and soldiers. No surprise. Governments will be governments, and that's not good. Now, this is not to say that the shades of gray didn't differ at all, perhaps even significantly on occasion. But the objective was always, first and foremost, booty and control of people. The interests of commoners were rarely, rarely, if ever, the cause. And we see this in Russia's war on Ukraine. Now he says, let's be clear, Vladimir Putin and his Russian government freely chose to send military forces across the border into Ukraine. And the military personnel complied. They ultimately are responsible for their choices and therefore the death, injury, and mayhem taking place. Now, he says, I do make an exception for proven false flag operations on the Ukrainian side, should any come to light. But now that the issue of primary culpability is out of the way, we can go on to talk about contributory culpability. And he says, I hope I've left little room for anyone to argue that assigning contributory culpability to others is intended to let the Russian government personnel off the hook. So what sort of culpability does he have in mind? Well, it's on the order of setting a trap and loading it with bait in order to lure a target. Now, Russia had to choose to step into it, but those who set the trap did not have to do, do what they did. Hence, they contributed to a terrible situation. Sheldon Richmond says many expert analysts have long pointed out that the U.S. government has, at least since the late 1990s, been knowingly provoking Russia by expanding NATO up to the country's western border incorporating most of its allies and some of the republics of the late Soviet Union. He says, for years, the U.S. government and other NATO officials have talked publicly about inviting the former republics, Ukraine and Georgia, to join. Everyone knew that Ukraine was an especially sensitive matter because it had long been a buffer between Russia and states to the west, Poland in particular. 
The Soviet Union had been invaded three times in the 20th century, twice by Germany and once by Poland, both NATO members since the demise of the USSR. The warnings against NATO's march eastward were too many to count and came from people as diverse as Henry Kissinger and Noam Chomsky. Soviet rollback guru Paul Nietz and a Soviet containment architect George Cannon. The current director of the CIA, William J. Burns, warned in 2008 when he was George W. Bush's ambassador to Russia that no Russian leader, conservative or liberal, would ever stand for the admission of Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. Burns's leaked memo was written shortly after publicly NATO declared that it welcomed applications for membership from those states. Now, that was 14 years ago, and six years before the, U- the U.S. State Department helped foment a Nazi-backed coup that drove a Russia-friendly but democratically elected president from power, even though he had been making concessions to the opposition in the streets, including a call for early elections. Sheldon Richmond says what motivated the U.S. government was that president's intention to reject an exclusive economic and political relationship with the European Union in order to accept a loan with liberal terms from Russia. Now, aside from the overt NATO talk, there's the matter of the U.S. government's putting missile launchers in Poland and Romania. As outfitted, they are for defensive anti-missile missiles, but that could be changed. Moreover, defensive missiles obviously can be useful in an offensive campaign. Remember that Donald Trump, the reputed Russian agent, had earlier denounced the Reagan-era treaty that banned intermediate-range nuclear weapons from Europe and elsewhere. No one could have been surprised when all this was worrisome to the Russians. Recall what happened in 1962 when the Soviet Union tried to put missiles in Cuba. John F. Kennedy imposed a naval blockade on the island and was ready to launch a nuclear war if the missiles were not removed. Well, since the Russian invasion, Joe Biden and his foreign policy people have denounced Russia sanctimoniously for its violations of international law and brutality, including the inexcusable deaths of noncombatants. Sheldon Richmond says it is not inappropriate to ask when an American president has ever respected international law when it was inconvenient for U.S. objectives. In the 21st century alone, American presidents have launched illegal aggressive wars in the Middle East and other places to affect regime change and other geopolitical objectives, even partially on behalf of other states, such as Israel. In the process, Americans have killed untold noncombatants. They have tortured prisoners. They've wreaked sickening destruction, creating hordes of refugees and so on. Yet day after day, lying American officials, but he says, I repeat myself, admonish Putin for his bad behavior. There's nothing like setting a good example. Now, Ukrainian leaders must also share in the blame. Those leaders who have been West-leaning have not been shy about aspiring to join NATO, knowing full well how the Russians would interpret those words. Since the 2014 coup, in response to which Russia annexed a long-standing security area, the Crimea, with its Russian naval base, to keep it out of NATO hands. Ukrainian presidents could have made overtures to Russia, assuring they would not seek NATO membership and offering to make Ukraine neutral in the manner of Austria since 1955. But they did not do that, even though the current president, Volodymyr Zelensky, a former comedian and actor, was elected on a Peace with Russia platform. Now, superficially, Zelensky is an appealing figure. He's young and charismatic and wears T-shirts. His country has been invaded, which, of course, puts him in a sympathetic light when he appears on television. But is that the whole story of the man? 
It also seems that despite the terms of the Minsk agreements, he has been unwilling to talk to leaders in the heavily Russian ethnic Donbass region in the far east of Ukraine about home rule. Two provinces there, Luhansk and Donetsk, have since declared their independence, which Russia has recognized. The Ukrainian military has been shelling the area since the 2014 coup, and the Donbass forces have fought back. Casualties on both sides have been high. And here he actually cites Jacques Baud, whose article I link in my show notes today, an intelligence expert who's worked for NATO, the UN, and Swiss Strategic Intelligence. Jacques Baud writes, on March 24, 2021, Volodymyr Zelensky issued a decree for the recapture of the Crimea and began to deploy his forces to the south of the country. At the same time, several NATO exercises were conducted between the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea, accompanied by a significant increase in reconnaissance flights along the Russian border. Russia then conducted several exercises to test the operational readiness of its troops and to show that it was following the evolution of the situation. Now, Baud also writes, in violation of the Minsk agreements, the Ukraine was conducting air operations in Donbass using drones, including at least one strike against a fuel depot in Donetsk in October 2021. Now, the American press noted this, but not the Europeans, and no one condemned these violations, end quote. So Sheldon Richmond says it begins to look as though Zelensky has cavalierly used the Ukrainian people for his own ends. Instead of seeking peace, he sought or was willing to risk war with Russia, assuming the U.S. government and other NATO states would back him up with perhaps more than arms shipments. He still demands a NATO no-fly zone, which would all but assure a new world war and perhaps an all-out nuclear war. So he also shares in the responsibility. The point here that Sheldon Richmond is getting at is that, as usual, there is plenty of blame to go around. Now, I don't know, you know, how much time you spend thinking about this kind of thing. I I would not recommend, hey, you should be very, you know, up to date and absolutely know every aspect of this. Because the chances are this is really not a fight in which you have a dog, right? But if you're trying to cut through the lies and the official misinformation and disinformation... I've hopefully provided some ready resources, which, again, you can access by going to my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. If you like what you find, if you find it useful, consider subscribing. I'll drop a copy of those notes in your email inbox every single day that I do the show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. This is a program that is first and foremost about encouraging and providing the tools for my listeners to think as clearly and independently as they can about the world around us. Now that doesn't mean that uh, you're going to you're going to listen to every word I say and believe it. You're going to you're going to take me at my word. I wouldn't ask that of you. It's not my place to tell you what to think. I'm just here to encourage you to question everything that is being presented to you, including what I share with you. Although I will point out in my defense that I'm doing my best to try to to use sources that are more based in principle and less based in partisanship. 
I would rather see, you know, people disagree with me and just having considered, you know, that uh, maybe there is some information out there that could provide a more complete view of what's happening. So I'm not offering you an entirely new worldview, but I am offering a slightly different vantage point from which to assess the situation and then make up your own mind. Hopefully that's something you can work with. I've got some great sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis, including Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. You can visit their website at DixieChiro.com. And there's three, three groups of people that I specifically would like to recommend. If you are in southern Utah and you are dealing with uh, car accident injuries, talk to Dr. Wagner. Go to DixieChiro.com. If you're dealing with bulging herniated discs, check out their $99 intro special. That's two treatments plus massage. Again, you can get the information at DixieChiro.com, including how to call the office and set up your appointment. And if you are dealing with neuropathy, Here's the $99 CalMare treatment plus massage. It's DixieChiro.com. Please let them know that their message has reached your ears. Well, you know, the creed of statism was something I was introduced to a few years ago with this marvelous book called The State Versus the People. And it was from Aaron Zellman and, oh my goodness, Claire Wolf? I'm sorry, I... I Shoot, I don't even have it sitting here in front of me so I can can reference it. But um, I remember one of the authors. (laughs) But here's what I do remember. The creed of statism is simply this. Anything that's not under the control of the state is, by definition, out of control. Now, you can see that at work at a lot of different levels of your life. And one of the places where we are starting to hear this and see this again is regarding cryptocurrency. Got a great article here by Spruce Fontaine. Are you sure you want a government cryptocurrency? And Spruce Fontaine says in an article by Wendy McElroy from Bitcoin.com back in 2017, Ms. McElroy took on the hazards of a digital currency issued by the U.S. government. Now, back then it was referred to as FedCoin. The subject's been on the down low, but the recent executive order by President Biden to study the creation of a U.S. government cryptocurrency brings the subject to the forefront, as a recent NBC News article reports. Here's a quote from that article. The Biden administration is putting its support behind the research and development of a U.S. central bank digital currency, or CBDC. The move is part of a sweeping executive order President Joe Biden signed Wednesday, instructing the federal government to explore possible uses of and regulations for digital assets like cryptocurrencies, end quote. Spruce Fontaine says, most people regard cash as slightly cumbersome. I often take note of people's choice of payment options at convenience stores and drive through windows. Most prefer plastic. It's speedy, purse space efficient, and tight budget flexible. Can the government be sufficiently persuasive to motivate people to give up cash to a rectangle made of official government plastic? Well, Spruce says, I admit that I've assumed that a transition to plastic currency would fulfill the predictions of futurists and sci-fi writers. With the invention of blockchain, it struck me as inevitable. Such an inevitability now seems frightening against the backdrop of a cancel culture and the Edward Snowden realities of everyone's private internet and cell phone communications being stored on NSA server farms. Trudeau cutting off the bank accounts of Canada's protesting truckers was the final nail in the coffin for me to oppose a cashless future with only a plastic FedCoin-type card. Monetary gurus Doug Casey and Wendy McElroy also answer the how and why 
of a government Bitcoin-style currency. Why would people use the cryptocurrency? FedCoin would almost certainly emerge as a parallel currency which would be adopted due to government requirements for its use in paying taxes or accessing entitlements such as Social Security. Increasingly, however, FedCoin would become a tool to push toward a cashless society because physical money provides a privacy that prevents government control. End quote. So Spruce Fontaine says the godlike power to control and cancel personal bank account transactions is the stuff of serious authoritarian, or sorry, totalitarian control. With cash replaced by a Fed coin, the government could control, alt, delete one's ability to spend or generally function until the person got vaccinated, for example. Because of government access to every financial transaction, it could fight obesity by limiting one's Snicker, Snickers Blizzard purchases. The government keeping track of ice cream treats might seem a bit over the top. But don't forget that banks must now report transactions over $600. The government didn't used to care, but it does now. Cryptocurrency uses the high-profile moniker blockchain, a system of verification algorithms. Each Bitcoin transaction has a permanent ID tag. In computer lingo, a nonce, a genesis reference that acts as an authenticator, creating a non-changeable transaction history. Thus, it does not permit falsification by a bad actor. Blockchain is decentralized, so no one entity has the majority control over the transaction history to fraudulently change it. But a U.S. central bank digital currency could change that. Financial writer J.P. Koning speculated in an article entitled FedCoin, quote, The Fed would create a new blockchain. There would be an important difference between FedCoin and more traditional crypto ledgers. One user, the Fed, would get special authority to create and destroy ledger entries. The government could become the bad actor precisely because of its majority control over the blockchain ledger history. The ledger would go from being decentralized to centralized. And with that comes the ability to program and reprogram, putting your financial privacy and independence in jeopardy. Now, of course, the government would promise not to do that. But Spruce Fontaine says, hey, once a society goes cashless, a socialist, ever-voracious government with the crypto-algorithmic keys to control an individual American's financial assets is a most frightening aspect, or prospect, rather. Now, I don't know if that leaves you wondering, well, what can I do about it? On the one hand, you know, I have this conversation with my wife, and we kind of go back and forth. I'm very, very interested in crypto right now. I think that, uh, I think that it's probably wise for everybody to have a portion of their money in crypto. If for no other reason than simply because, well, the government doesn't want you to have it. But I also understand if you are going through one of the traditional exchanges, you have the the equivalent of government agents waiting at every entry and exit point. I mean, you can keep that money in crypto, but the second you try to convert it into dollars or, you know, to purchase something, government's there with its hand out. Hey, man, where's my money? Where's my money? Come on, man, you got to cough up. Something good happened in your life, and I deserve a cut of your happiness. So you got to have control of your own crypto wallet. And I'm just enough of a neophyte. I couldn't even give you a good description of how to go about setting one up. But I know people who are really good at this. <laughs> and so I would recommend take a closer look at it. Maybe it's the right thing for you. Maybe it isn't. Uh, my wife is convinced, well, the government's going to find a way to take it over. And it, clearly, they're, they're trying to create their own version of it. 
but I believe that the original uh, blockchain technology, I think it's it's still the decentralized answer. And I don't think all the king's horses and all the king's men are, have quite figured out how they can assume control of it. Even if they build a parallel system, which it sounds very much like they're about to do, you'll have to be forced into using it through legal tender laws, which is, these are the laws that force us to accept colored pieces of paper as legal tender, you know, for payment of debts, public and private. I mean, I've always kind of been kind of a precious metals fan, and uh, more than ever, I believe that, uh, you know, if you worry about, well, what about my money in the bank? Is that something that's just going to be able to be switched off or otherwise put out of reach of me, frozen, like we saw in the case of those who supported the Canadian truckers? Maybe it would be time to put it into something physical. You know, the, the precious metals being one option, farmable land being another option, tools, you know, and, and other commodities. I can't answer that for you. That's something you have to sort out for yourself. All I'm saying is, if it's bad enough that someone like me, who's relatively uneducated on such matters, is getting nervous and thinking, hey, might want to take some steps to protect what wealth you have, then it's got to be pretty bad. I ain't exactly the sharpest knife in the drawer is what I'm trying to say. All right, got to take a quick break. We'll be back. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com is one of my great sponsors. They are located in beautiful, sunny southern Utah, St. George to be specific. And I don't know if you have thought about, uh, you know, a sewing machine or even a quilting machine or a serger or something like this as part of your personal preps. I, I'm trying to think, how do I how do I make this sound like, you know, when the apocalypse comes, you're going to be glad you have a sewing machine because I don't want it to sound dire like this. But at the same time, you know, the ability to mend or to even fabricate your own clothing seems like a pretty wise thing and a good skill to have. If just, you know, hypothetically, things were to get, oh, I don't know, extraordinarily expensive. You know, if there was, uh, what's it called, inflation, you know, running rampant. Man, wouldn't it make sense to have the, the materials and supplies and the skills on hand, the means to do your own sewing or, again, the, the repair of your clothing to make it last as long as possible? Just wondering aloud here. For that matter, if you're thinking in terms of, you know, heritage and things that can be handed down for generations. Every time I go to my mom's house, I, I'm, I marvel at the quilts that she and her friends have put together over the years. Lasting, enduring legacy pieces that will be handed down for generations. Well, there are machines that make uh, the creation of these quilts so much easier. Again, go to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. They've got all the information you could possibly want. They not only sell the machines themselves, but they will train you how to use them. They sell the supplies, the thread, the fabric, everything that goes with it. And yes, they even service those same machines. I mean, you can't lose. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com You know, if you spend much time traveling by air, 
you may have found yourself wondering at some point, what exactly do the airlines owe their customers? Now, Art Carden has an excellent piece from the uh, from AIER.org, that's the American Institute for Economic Research. It's titled, Delta Doesn't Owe Me More Legroom. I thought you'd appreciate his take on this. He says, I've traveled so much in the, over the last few months that I'm recognized at the Delta check-in counter at the Birmingham airport. This travel has given me ample time to think about what airlines owe their customers. He says, airlines take flack periodically when they try to charge extremely obese passengers for two seats. And he says, I have some notes I made years ago when there was a similar dust-up about leg room or the lack of it for tall passengers. Now, as a tall guy, he's about six foot five. He says, I know the discomfort of sharing a row with another big passenger. Isn't it outrageous that they cram us into those tiny seats to increase their profits? Don't the airlines owe us comfortable rides? Well, he says, no and no. It's clear when we ask what airlines would have to give up. It might seem callous to write, big passengers who value comfort could pay to sit in first class or comfort seats. We did not choose to be this way, however. Why should the big and tall pay more, especially when we are that way through no fault of our own? Well, he says the answer is pretty simple. It costs more to serve big and tall passengers. It's not because we ask for a refill on coffee, which he does, or because we take too many snacks. We cost more because we take up more room. So an obese passenger spilling over into the next seat so much that no one can sit there costs the airline the revenue they would have enjoyed by selling that seat to another passenger. Now, he says, I don't see how this is fair to the workers and shareholders who rely on the airline's prosperity for income. A single obese passenger taking up two seats for which passengers would pay between 500 each or would pay $500 each costs $1,000. That's the airline's revenue from selling tickets to someone else in order to accommodate them. So it might be an injustice in a cosmic sense, but it's unclear why this is the other passenger's problem. Now, Art Carden says legroom is like that, too. Airlines could offer more legroom, but they would have fewer seats per plane if they did. And the revenue they would have to give up to provide the more comfortable seats is the cost of accommodating taller passengers. But again, it's not clear why my height, weight, and girth, uh, to be told, truth be told, are the responsibility of teachers in California whose pension funds might own Delta stock. Should they accept lower profits and less comfortable retirements because I want more legroom? So he says, let's come back to, if you want it, pay for it, because it illustrates how people respect one another's choices in free markets. Airlines offer more legroom and wider seats for people willing to pay for them. But he says, time and again, we passengers reveal through our choices that we're not willing. If I wanted to guarantee myself a lot of space, I could do so by booking a seat in first class or Comfort Plus. But he says, I usually don't do this. Instead, I pay the basic economy fare and occasionally enter into a lottery where, because I fly Delta pretty regularly, I occasionally get bumped up to Comfort Plus or First Class. Now, he says, I could pay for guaranteed legroom, but I'm usually not willing to. I grumble when I fold myself into a tiny seat with no legroom next to someone my size. I remind myself, however, that I could have paid a little extra to be more comfortable, but decided I preferred other things instead. So why isn't travel more comfortable when it easily could be? Simple. Passengers aren't willing to pay for it. By offering bigger seats and more legroom, airlines are essentially asking if we're ready to cover the cost of providing the additional comfort. 
When we choose cheaper, less comfortable economy class seats, we're saying, no thank you. You know, I I don't know why, but I, I don't even do much flying these days. To, frankly, between the mask requirements and, you know, other security theater stuff that goes on at the airport, I fly as little as I possibly can. But I really like Art Carden's take on this. And I think I like it because it cuts to the, the heart of the entitlement mentality. Now, once in a while, I've, I've been on a flight or two where it's like, wow, you know, the uh, Comfort Plus option or first class would really have been a nice option. And I've known people who, you know, that I was flying with that in the midst of, uh, you know, getting ready for the flight went up and said, you know what, I want to rebook. You have any you have anything open in business class or, you know, even in first class? And they paid handsomely to have that extra legroom. Usually these were like overnight flights from Alaska or something like that where you were going to be hunkered down in that plane for a pretty good period of time. But for the most part, I'm looking at my wallet and going, yeah, I can endure a little discomfort here for, you know, however many hours the flight is. I mean, if you're going to be a world traveler, if you're on a 19-hour flight somewhere, okay, Probably best to, to spring for a little bit, a little bit uh, more comfortable seat. I know my, my 10-hour flights back and forth between Europe were, well, they were about right at the limit of what I was able to endure comfort-wise. But I, again, if it mattered enough to me, I would find a way. Isn't this true in life with most things, right? If it matters enough to you, you're going to find a way. If that means purchasing your ticket further ahead of time so that you can afford, you know, a better price on your ticket. If that means, you know, we'll just have to budget a little more carefully. Maybe instead of getting a a nicer rental car when we get where we're going, we're going to get something, you know, equivalent to a rickshaw. Whatever it is, you know, we all make choices. But it's not like you aren't being offered choices, right? And I guess that's that's the point. You have the choice, it's just that it's going to cost you for that choice. And and I love the way that Art Carden describes it. Well, why does it cost so much more to fly first class? Well, because fewer people can fit into first class because they've taken the space in which they could have crammed more passengers and they've just made those accommodations for those willing to pay more for that space. I don't know. I go back and forth, you know, between uh, frustration and admiration for the airlines. On the one hand, it is wonderful to be able to travel anywhere in a matter of hours. You know, you can be halfway around the world in half a day. That's that's truly amazing. But I also get frustrated with, uh, you know, sometimes the the rigid acceptance of the mask requirements and so forth. Where do we stand on this, by the way? I know the the Biden administration uh, re-upped. For another two weeks, you know, the mask requirements on various flights and public transportation. Something tells me that when that two weeks comes to an end, somehow they're going to re-up it again. I have a theory about this, and that is, hey, it's our last little vestige of proving that we have power, of reminding people why they need us, and that's why they hang on to it. And that's just my interpretation, but that's what my gut tells me, and I don't think I'm too far off. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. 
All right, I'm going to I'm going to tackle a slightly sensitive topic here. Well, sensitive for some. Hopefully, you're not phased by it. You probably heard the phrase "white fragility." Oh yes, yes. The only reason you object to being called racist is because you are so fragile because of your whiteness, or or so it goes. I mean, isn't it crazy? The only possible answer that you can give when someone accuses you of being racist racist or explains that, well, because of the color of your skin, you can't help but be racist. The only acceptable responses, I think, at this point are, you know, for you to say, um, thank you so much for your input, or I appreciate your, your counsel on this matter, or yes, it's just a matter of inevitability before I realize that I am racist. At no point are you allowed to say, what the heck have you been smoking? Or why would you even say such a thing about me? Or, wait, you're judging me based on my skin color? Isn't that something a racist would do? Yeah, they'll, they'll flip out if you do that one. Nonetheless, great article here from Julian Adorney. This is on Foundation for Economic Education's website, fee.org. White Fragility, Unpacking the Kafka Traps of Robin D'Angelo's New York Times bestseller. Robin D'Angelo, of course, is the author of the book, White Fragility. But uh, this article points out how Robin D'Angelo breaks from established rules of scholarship in a number of ways. Julian Adorney says the biggest issue with Robin D'Angelo's New York Times bestseller, White Fragility, is that it throws the rules of good scholarship out the window. Now, that's a bold claim, but multiple quotes from D'Angelo's book readily back this up. Here's the first one. You ready for this? If you're white, you're racist. He says D'Angelo's biggest claim that is if you're white, you're automatically and unavoidably racist. Now, to be clear, D'Angelo doesn't mean that all white people have a conscious anti-minority bias. Rather, she claims that all white people employ racist assumptions and patterns that harm people of color and display an underlying bias. So, to quote D'Angelo, racism is unavoidable and it is impossible to completely escape having developed problematic and racial assumptions and behaviors. End quote. Speaking of herself, D'Angelo is white. She says, I also understand that there is no way for me to avoid enacting problematic racial patterns. Now here, Julian Adorney says, if D'Angelo, an associate professor of education at the University of Washington, were simply outing her own biased patterns, that would be one thing. Where her argument breaks the rules of good scholarship is that she makes it out or she makes it in a way that's unfalsifiable. D'Angelo considers multiple objections to her claim that all white people are racist. Well, what if you're married to a black person, have black children, do mission work in Africa, or march during the civil rights movement? movement? Well, she rejects all of these objections. That is, if you're white, even if you have a black spouse and adopt black children and risk life and limb helping poor people in Africa, you're still racist. For D'Angelo, you are racist even if you actively try to promote racial equality, for instance, by marching with Dr. Martin Luther King in the 1960s. If you're white, there's no way for you to not be racist. Now, a good scholar will present a hypothesis and test it. This is the scientific method, and it applies as much to the social sciences, D'Angelo is a sociologist, as to the physical sciences. The reason scholars do this is that we're all human, and none of us has all the answers. Therefore, we must discuss and debate ideas and marshal evidence for and against them in order to reach the truth. And at the root of good scholarship is the humility to accept that you might not have the world completely figured out. 
D'Angelo takes a different tack. She presents her hypothesis as axiomatic and therefore beyond question. If you're white, you're racist, full stop. All right, here's another example. Every accusation of racism is true. She breaks from the established rules of, sp- of scholarship by explicitly adopting a mentality of believe all accusers. Now, D'Angelo says that if you're accused of racism, the only acceptable response is to thank the person for pointing out your racism and to promise to do better. For D'Angelo, acceptable responses include, I appreciate this feedback. It is inevitable that I have this pattern. I want to change it. This is very helpful. Thank you. And I have some work to do so as to stop enacting this racist behavior in the future. And to be clear, these are all great responses if the accusation is valid. If you make a racist joke, for instance, you walk into a primarily black movie theater and claim it's like walking into Planet of the Apes like Joe Rogan did and people pointed out, you should sincerely apologize and try to do better, as Rogan did. But the problem is that accusations aren't always true. Sometimes the person, making, the person who's making the accusation has simply misunderstood the situation. They might mishear, lack context, or simply have an underlying assumption that's incorrect. We're all human both those making the accusations and those on the receiving end. So accusations need to be weighed on their merits, not just assumed to be true. D'Angelo's approach is a refutation of the idea that innocent until proven guilty, but it's bigger than that, too. It's the rejection of the scientific method, wherein claims, even claims such as John's a racist, are weighed according to things like evidence and can be disagreed with. If you're accused of racism under D'Angelo's approach... Even asking a third party to weigh in is considered unacceptable. D'Angelo says that sometimes if someone calls her racist, she's tempted to ask another person of color for their perspective. But she dismisses this urge as inappropriate and something that upholds racism. Now, even weirder, for D'Angelo, denial of the accusation of racism is proof of your racism. In a telling passage, D'Angelo talks about white people who think they are not racist or are less racist or are in the choir or already get it. She says these people cause the most daily damage to people of color. That is, if you deny that you are racist, you are part of the group that, according to D'Angelo, does more actual damage to people of color than the KKK. Now, this is a logical fallacy known as a Kafka trap. A Kafka trap is when someone is accused of something, and if they defend themselves, then it's considered proof of their guilt. Now, crucially and disturbingly, D'Angelo doesn't play by her own rules on this. John McWhorter, a black liberal and Columbia University professor, wrote a review of White Fragility in the Atlantic that accuses the book of racism. The review is titled The Dehumanizing Condescension of White Fragility and includes lines like this, quote, Few books about race have more openly infantilized black people than this supposedly authoritative tome, end quote. When an interviewer brought up the McWhorter criticism, D'Angelo dismissed it. Her response, I think that is a disingenuous reading on the part of John McWhorter. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with saying that a critic is being disingenuous, but notice how sharply her response differs from the range of acceptable responses that she offers her white readers. Kafka Kafka trap rules for thee, but not for me. Then there's the idea that if you're white, you're fragile. Besides the idea that all people are all white people are racist and that any accusation of racism must be accepted unless it's unless it's a black conservative calling D'Angelo racist. There's the third trap of the book that's in some ways equally troubling, another Kafka trap. D'Angelo argues that if you're white, you're automatically fragile when it comes to any discussion of race. 
She uses the term white fragility to describe how difficult she finds it in her workshops to get white people to talk about race, racial identities, and racial hierarchies in the United States. And to be clear, having real conversations about race can be difficult. It's something that many Americans don't want to talk about, and probably a majority of those Americans have white skin. But just like the rest of her book, D'Angelo takes what could be a nuanced point and approaches it without any respect for the ideals of good scholarship. How does she claim this fragility manifests? Via behaviors and emotions such as argumentation, silence, leaving the stress-inducing situation, that is, the, the room where the person is being informed of how fragile they are, guilt, tears, and anger. That is, if you're white, you are fragile. If you disagree that you're fragile, it's proof of your fragility. If you agree, of course, that's proof of your fragility, too. If you remain silent, that's also proof of your fragility. So D'Angelo doesn't really seem to consider the possibility that someone might disagree with her argument, not because they're fragile, but because her argument is simply flawed. Are some white people fragile? Of course. Do all 204 million white Americans share such similar psychology that you can accuse them all of the same character flaw and do so with such confidence that disagreement is seen as just more proof of your rightness? That's a little more difficult. Weirdly, even wanting to promote racial equality is a sign of of white fragility. For D'Angelo, the guilt is the point. If you're white, the work is to embrace this guilt. And wanting to jump over the hard personal work and get to solutions is one of the patterns of the foundation of white fragility. So the idea that white people are innately fragile would be a bold hypothesis, even if she tried to back it up. But in practice, it's just one more unfalsifiable claim. Now, to be clear... There are genuine racial barriers in the United States, and in a lot of ways, black Americans and white Americans receive unequal seats at the table. In her new book, in her book, The New Jim Crow, for instance, former U.S. Supreme Court clerk Michelle Alexander documents the existence of phenomena like white privilege and systemic racism in the criminal justice system. And those barriers are things that all of us should be trying to fix. But D'Angelo's book, full of calls to self-flagellate and light on actual ideas... It's unlikely to get us there. I'll have a link to this excellent article in the show notes, which you can check out for yourself at thebrianhideshow.com. I mean, I'm of the opinion, look, if someone comes up offering these kinds of arguments, probably best not to dignify them with a response. But hey, that just may be my white fragility talking, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Once again, thank you for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. It's a challenge, right, to to stand up and to, to speak the truth or to even consider the truth in a time when deception is so universal and, and it's so out in the open. I have to hearken back to the idea that what we saw last week when Elon Musk made the offer to buy Twitter outright Look at the people who closed ranks. Look at the institutions that closed ranks for the purpose of saying this is so dangerous. This is this is terrible. Democracy depends upon greater content moderation, not on more free exchange of ideas. And it should be pretty clear to anybody who's paying attention. This is not about uh, correcting wrongs. This is not about protecting people or even saving lives. Remember, that was the that was the justification under COVID. Well, if we get misinformation out there, people could die. 
Not so. Now it's simply, well, you are not allowed to consider anything other than the official pronouncements of the official regime uh, for things concerning the Ukraine-Russia conflict or where inflation is coming from or anything like that. I hope I'm not being too crass when I say, screw that. It's my mind. I trust myself. And if that makes, well, you're just some kind of a monster for thinking you could trust yourself when we've got all these experts and fact checkers lined up to make sure that you don't stray into, you know, unfamiliar territory. I don't know. It seems to me that, uh, you know, I'm just a, I'm just an average guy, but I've been paying attention for quite a few years here. And it seems like those fact checkers and those experts all seem to have this common goal of keeping me from getting too close to reality. They don't want me to see the truth because I might decide that uh, I'm being fed a bunch of lies. And if I decide I'm being fed a bunch of lies, I might decide to stop believing the people who are telling me those lies. I might even withdraw my consent from them, and (gasps) that could be dangerous, right? So let's talk about critical thinking in troubled times. I think one of the things that has blown me away the most was the, the seamless switch with which public consciousness shifted from obsession with a virus to obsession with Russia and Ukraine. And, and by, by switch, I don't just mean that, oh, yes, our awareness changed. I mean, people changed the, the, the avatars on their social media, the things that they are willing to vigorously argue with strangers on the Internet about in a heartbeat. And it's, it seems like there are just very few people who are able to recognize, hey, that's, that sounds pretty manipulative to see that wholesale switch in public consciousness. But this is, this is why the idea that if Twitter becomes, you know, a platform of real free exchange of ideas, it threatens the ability of the powers that be to control the narrative and what we're supposed to believe. Got a great article here from William Bernard Butler, Sound Advice for Critical Thinking in Troubled Times. He says, in a matter of about a month, the United States federal government silently and unilaterally exited from a two-year war on an illusory and perhaps illusionary virus and pivoted toward fomenting and provoking a kinetic war with a nuclear-armed Russia. While many people in the U.S. unquestioningly and dutifully removed their masks and started using the Ukrainian flag emoji on their iPhones and social media feeds, the rest of us are left with trying to discern whether we are on the precipice of a kinetic World War III or simply witnessing a bankrupt and petrodollar-dependent leviathan in its death throes, or perhaps both. As a sign of the times, he says, this week I witnessed a 40-something-year-old black cop at a gas station speaking to the 50-something white station owner when the cop said, I am so sick of this fear BS. As soon as they put the COVID bottle of fear back on the shelf, they take the Ukraine bottle of fear off and put it in front of people and yell lies at them till they're actually afraid. Don't people know that all this BS only benefits the people trying to control you? Now, the cop was wearing a mask strapped absurdly far under his chin. When asked why he was wearing a mask, he said, so I can ask everyone who two weeks ago was asking me to pull my mask up why they aren't wearing theirs anymore. I'm going to keep wearing it like this until they wake up. Now, William Bernard Butler says, acknowledging this reality, the CDC is now rapidly reversing its, revising its statistics, rather, admitting that the pandemic was a non-event health-wise. The brilliant saints who recognized at the outset that COVID was always the 2020 seasonal flu dressed up and repackaged for purposes of maintaining political control have now been vindicated. 
The pandemic narrative was and is a story, a story that appears to have been authored in order to distract the public from the pain and discomfort associated with an economic decoupling from China. It's now fairly clear that the powers that be used the pandemic story to hold, gain, and consolidate economic and political power through an economic crisis that they knew was already upon us in January of 2020. Although much of the ground has been lost, much ground has been lost in terms of personal liberty in the last two years, much has also been gained in terms of accurate risk information, exposing precisely who the pandemic plotters and promoters were and are. The political and business leaders who were complicit in fostering the pandemic narrative are not qualified to lead going forward. As compelled vaccination injuries manifest and it is exposed and recognized that there never was a federal or state law or any other legitimate legal authority that would compel innocent and healthy people to submit to a dangerous Nuremberg Code violating experimental drug therapy, these political and business leaders must and inevitably will be removed from positions of power. He says, we could not agree more with Robert, Dr. Robert Malone, who advocates that these people be outed, removed from power, and monitored to make sure that they never be afforded the public's trust in the future. As just two examples of the plans of the Davos clique, both the CEO of UPS, Carol Tome, and the CEO of Wells Fargo, Charlie Scharf, are World Economic Forum alums who were shoehorned into their positions in late 2019. And he says, I suspect there are dozens, if not hundreds, of people like this. Looking at the past two years with vision unclouded by fearful messages pulsating on every screen, the facts confirm that COVID was much more of an economic event than a health event. In January of 2020, before the first case allegedly appeared in the U.S., we saw midnight videos from workers at the Port of Los Angeles showing that the port mysteriously had almost no shipping containers. We felt then that something was afoot. Also in January of 2020, we heard from the U.S. CEO in Davos that U.S. CEOs, rather, that U.S.-China trade had broken down and U.S. exports had come to a standstill. In March of 2020, before the pandemic narrative had gotten its sea legs, we saw the Federal Reserve throw out its playbook, violate its charter and federal law, and engage in direct purchases of U.S. treasuries and unprecedented money printing. Now an ever-increasing plurality of people, including the cop at the gas station, understands the psychological game being played when they hear a maskless Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock and World Economic Forum graduate, tell us that globalization is over and that the pandemic caused economic decoupling with China. So, going forward, we will be more aware and look for and seek to identify the unseen and potentially very dangerous and destabilizing second-order effects of things like lockdowns and PPP money printing. Now add to this list military provocations intended to interfere with trade relationships between the EU and Russia and China, and perhaps most relevant, the very real threats to the international petrodollar system caused by U.S. seizure of Russia's forex reserves. If you want to understand why the Russian threat to the dollar is important, he has three different articles linked in, inside this article. In short, Putin's so far successful attempts to demand Russian rubles for Russian gas and Saudi Arabia's coincident agreement to accept Chinese yuan for its oil rather than U.S. dollars has the potential to cause an international run on the dollar. The second-order domestic effect of this rubles-for-gas cause may mean significant long-term inflation and short-to-medium-term stagflation as people and governments holding internationally weakened petrodollars bring them back to the U.S., to buy things that will hold better value than the dollars themselves. 
Now, he says, what concerns us most about the recent events in the Russia-Ukraine drama is the, that the hopelessly, hopelessly outmatched people leading the U.S. have unwittingly taken actions that have resulted in petrodollar destabilization and that this will result in an unexpectedly fast decline in U.S. living standards. Why? Because everything costs more. He says, we're also concerned that the powers that beat Davos crowd will do something even more rash and reckless in an attempt to distract us from this reality and or present a false cause for the domestic economic destabilization that they've created by stealing Russian forex reserves. Now, there's a lot more to this article. It's, it's very lengthy. But the bottom line is, we need to think clearly. We need to question these narratives. And he kind of ends on a, on a hopeful note. You know, you're starting to see some of the people who can be trusted. You're starting to see some of the voices that are willing to speak the truth, even at great personal cost. I love this paragraph. Let's work and hope towards a President Ron DeSantis, Attorney General Ken Paxton, and Secretary of State, Secretary of Commerce Ron Johnson, and also Robert F. Kennedy Jr., or perhaps a Dr. Robert Malone, somewhere in federal leadership. The only people qualified to lead going forward are those who are not associated with Davos or the World Economic Forum and who were not fooled by the pandemic narrative. But he also says these people are few and far between. What a great article. Check it out. It's in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.